All right, we're working on through about every single difficult situation that you can possibly have, and we're talking about these difficult topics that we're going through. Last week, we talked about an extremely difficult topic that takes um, a huge weight um, on people. It puts a lot of fear in people. It brings a lot of concerns with people, and it is a very difficult topic to talk about. Um, And the reason why it's a very difficult topic to talk about is because we all still wonder one way. And then the other thing is that the church is divided on the topic. Um, So there is people that that I love like crazy that I just, whenever, you know, I need to know what the Bible says, I go to them. I say, okay, what does this person say about the Bible? And this person will give his points on every single topic. In other words, I'm not just making things up. Give his points on the topic. I'm like, okay, good. He, I agree with him because, you know, he's studied a lot more than I have. Um, and then there's other people that would be on the other side. Well, this guy's really studied, but he feels different about the topic. Well, the topic that we're talking about, there's a split. There is a divide in regards to that topic. But I want to really make it clear what the split and the divide is. So... The question is, um, number one, or not number one, but um, the title, is a second marriage a continual state of adultery? So in other words, if you get married again after being married to one person, is it a continual state of adultery that has taken place? This topic would not be a hot topic, except there is some extremely bold statements by Jesus extremely bold statements reiterated even by Paul in regards to divorce and remarriage. So we're going to tackle this topic, which is divided. I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't care if you agree with me. (laughs) If you disagree with me, you have other people that agree with you. Um, Don't be mad because this is what I've come down to the conclusion of this is where I believe that this is at. Um, when I say, this is where I believe, you know, this is not what I'm going to shout from the mountaintops. This is what I believe. But I will tell you that whenever I believe something, I put the gospel inside of it. And when I put the gospel inside of it, I try to make everything make sense through that gospel. And that's what I've done with this topic. And I will say that I'm not on my own plane saying, oh, this is what I believe. This whole half believes with me. And this other whole half does not um, agree with me. So I'm just going to make the statements Ten reasons why I believe that a second marriage is not a continual state of adultery. Last week, we gave you all the information. (laughs) This week, we're condensing the information. And as we condense the information, we're going to give you guys time to ask questions. Now, you guys can easily go off detailed questions and say, well, what does this verse say? Because this verse exactly say that. But I'm not doing this whole lesson by, this is exactly what this verse says do a lesson as a whole in the reasons why I believe it. So I'm just going to give you 10 reasons why I believe it, just to to bring it out there. This is going to be a little bit of a repeat from last year, or last year, last week. But number one, this is the reason. Jesus often used hyperboles to express his hate for sin. Uh, Jesus absolutely went crazy sometimes. Hyperboles is not an argument. 
we're not going to argue that Jesus did not use hyperboles. Because if you argue that Jesus used hyperboles, obviously you haven't read the Bible, or obviously you, you haven't studied that much because there's aggressive hyperboles that do come out, and we can say, oh yeah, this is a hyperbole. But the danger is of, well, is everything a hyperbole? The answer is no. But still, Jesus did use hyperboles in regards to um, sin, in regards to statements that he used. So the big hyperbole, where he goes really crazy and, and using um, hyperboles, is in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. What he does is he walks up there and he starts preaching. Now everybody is obeying the law. Pharisees are there. They're obeying the law and they're proud of themselves. The sinners are there. The Gentiles are there. They're not obeying the law and they're not proud of themselves. That's Jesus' conversation. And then he goes and he preaches a sermon against two uh, against the Pharisees, and even against the Gentiles, against almost every single listener. And when he preaches this sermon, I will tell you, he does get crazy. Let's look at it, Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it said to the people long ago, so I'm talking about the law, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, what did he just do? He just took Moses' law and stood above it. And said, yeah, Moses says this, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, again took the force, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Now if I came to you guys and I said, all right, I want you to raise your hand if you committed adultery before I read that verse... Some people get really nervous. <laughs> Some people would go, oh, you know, it's, it's not that big a deal. I didn't commit adultery, and their shoulders would get broad, and like, I'm a righteous person. But what does this verse say? Who committed adultery? You know what? You have to raise your hand. We all have to raise our hand because we committed adultery. Pharisees hate Jesus. Why? Because he just said they didn't have to raise their hand. If you look at a lustful person lustfully, you have already committed adultery in your heart. That is aggressive dialogue. And it is changing the world right here. But that's only the first part of the aggression. Let's finish the passage. If your right hand causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown to hell. I have to ask a question. Why do you guys have eyes in this room? Why do I have eyes in this room? Is Jesus doing something when he walks onto the scene as King of kings and Lord of lords, the only begotten Son of God? Yes, he's doing something, and he's doing something radical. Right below this verse, we're just continuing to walk down, right below. Furthermore, it has been said... Whoever divorces his wife, this is the same passage, whoever divorces his wife, you can see that Jesus is not ticked off, but this is a powerful sermon. <laughs> this is really coming down. Anyone who divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That's all in one statement in his sermon. You look, at less, you look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery. If you're angry, you com practically commit murder. If your eye causes you sin, 
gouge it out. All those things are being said. What's Jesus doing in this verse? Jesus is giving everyone a law that they cannot reach. There, we are living in a world of sin where we sin and we live in a piece of garbage and there is no way in the world that we can go to God with it. He is taking the law and not diminishing the law. He's taking the law and going beyond the law, and not even beyond the law, he's taking the law and says it has to be completely fulfilled. Because even before this passage is even preached, he said every single iota is going to be filled by the law and you better be even better than the Pharisees in the law. Take the law to the highest extreme. So much to extreme that it's like, Jesus, as he's preaching, we can't meet it. We can't, we can't do it. Jesus is saying, I know you can't, but I can, and I will, and you watch me do it. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You see what Jesus is doing to all the people, the Pharisees that are pretty good, they're pretty righteous, the Gentiles that know they're pretty ugly, pretty rotten. He's taking them all and he's putting them on one plane and says, nobody can get to God, period. Unless the law is absolutely, entirely, completely complete. And since it can't be complete in you, I'll complete it myself. He's pointing everybody directly to him. So this passage is mentioned um, in an area where he's being very, very um, aggressive. Does that mean that Jesus isn't serious about divorce? <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> he is so serious about divorce. I'll reiterate what I talked about last week, is that he says, if it's not sexual, um, 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 sexual, if it's not adultery, if it's not sexual sin, sexual immorality, you can't divorce only for a sexual immorality, and then also abandonment. Well, what about abuse? Well, what about all these things? Well, according to the Bible, it's saying this is the richness of divorce. I've given you things that you can divorce under. The other things, don't divorce under. But those, those things that are there, abandonment, leaving completely, husband leaving, wife leaving, or sexual um, immorality. But I do want to look at this verse. Is, is this a hyperbar- hyperbolic statement? Is this a hyperbole that he's saying? Um, I would not, I would, I would go to say he's aggressive and he is making a statement that is strong, that is powerful, the rich. The reason why I think, I believe that it's still hyperbole is because a marriage and remarriage is the only sin you cannot get out of. And what I mean by that, it is a pers- uh, uh, if this is adultery, a congenial state of adultery, it will be a perpetual sin that you cannot leave and God does not want you to leave because he can't divorce again, and we're going to talk more, um, more um, about that. But that's where I believe that this passage has made a graphic statement, uh, an aggressive statement. Number two, marital unfaithfulness is a word, pornea, which, is, which means any form of sexual immorality. So pornea is a word that, that is expressed for any, so, any, forward, uh, any um, sort of sexual immorality whatsoever, and I just want to use the uh, other passage to have pernea in mind and be able to look at these passages and say, is it adultery or is it a sexual immorality? 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins, this is pernea, all other sins a man commits are outside of his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So to put pernea as every time pernea is mentioned, it is adultery, you'd have to say, flee from adultery. All other sins a man commits outside of his body, but he who sins sexually 
sins against his own body, that changes that whole verse. Because then we can justify pornography. We can justify just about anything. Well, this verse is talking about sexual immorality that is in our mind, that is in our thoughts, that are on our eyes. That's what this verse is saying. It's not flee from adultery because this is what's going to ruin you. It's flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.13, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for adultery. You know, that's pernea. No, it's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, the Lord for the body. Galatians 5.19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. Is, is that, does that word fit in there? It's not adultery, it's immorality, impurity, and sensualities. Do you see the conversation he's talking with Pernia? It's not always just adultery. This is the connection with the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you're going to commit adultery. I mean, aggressive, aggressive words, but that's not, I'm going to sleep with another woman um, you know, outside of my marriage. That's not what it's, that's not what it's talking about. Then Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idol, um, idolatry. So he could have used another word that was in there, but he uses pernia instead. Pernia instead. Uh, number three, scripture insinuates that a divorced person will get remarried. Um, insinuates? Well, Jesus says, if you divorce, you will commit adultery. But there is insinuations that are actually there in the middle of it that says it's probably going to take place. You get divorced, people are going to get married again. Probably what's going to take place. Where are those insinuations? The same verse that he mentions in Matthew 5. But I tell you that any, and this is review from last week, so I'm kind of going fast, that if any of you that, I, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. You see what just happened? He hasn't even talked to her about being married again. He says it automatically causes her to be in adultery. Is that correct? Or does she have to get married again? Why didn't you say if you get married again? It's just all of a sudden she turns into adulteress if you divorce her. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. There's insinuation there that she'll probably get married. She'll probably get married again. God knows that two sinful individuals that are, are, are locked into the nature of sin, it's not going to just be this perfect world where everybody's just going to be absolutely perfect. There's a God that carries a grace, God that understands situations, not saying there's freedom to leave, because there's not freedom to leave. He does not give us that freedom to leave. But understands that past can be washed away and you can be born again. Born again means a new creation, a new creature. Somebody who is brand new. Number four, uh, remarriage is a state. Um, re- if remarriage is a state of adultery, it is because it is a union. While the former union remains in effect in God's sight, but that's not biblical. The only way remarriage can be adultery is if the union of your first wife remains intact. Because how can you commit adultery if you are not married? You can only commit adultery when you are married. So you're married to this person, you then divorce, and you go over here, now you're married to somebody else. Um, you can only commit adultery if that marriage is still connected. 
You understand what I'm saying? There has to be that sort of connection. So we have to work through this if we're going to say, you are in a perpetual state of adultery if you've been remarried. You'd have to figure out, well, what are you saying? You're saying that you must still be married to that first person. But is that the case in the Bible? Um, it's not the case in the Bible. John 4.18, here's Jesus talking to the woman at the well. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you are now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true, according to her. That statement is absolutely incorrect if her first union is only her husband. Because you can't have five husbands. Jesus should have said, you have one husband, and you had five other lovers beyond that. That would be the way that Jesus would need to make that statement. But he is saying that divorce has happened in your life, and there's been a separation, and you're married to this person, but now you're married to this person, and this person, this person. So do we have the same union with our first? We can't have the same union with our first with this comment, with this statement, and this is what Jesus, Jesus is saying. Number five. God does not tolerate perpetual sins. How could we expect him to tolerate perpetual adultery? How do we get out of a perpetual sin of adultery? When we talk um, about sin, um, sin can be washed away. Sin can be completely clean. Sin can be even forgotten from God's eyes. When we come to God and say, God, I am a broken person that needs to be washed, to need to be clean, to need to, that needs to be forgiven. Please, God, forgive me of my sins. What's going to happen to your sin? It's going to wash away. All right, now let's look at somebody that's been married and then is remarried, and you believe that every time they're having sex or every time they're even thinking about each other, they're committing adultery. If that is taking place, then I will tell you there's no chance for you to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's something about perpetual sin that is throwing into the face of God. I'm going to slap you, God. In other words, I take you for this, but I'm going to do exactly what I want, and I'm going to live in my sin. We will always preach against that because the Bible preaches against it. Control, fight, and root out perpetual sins. But if you are in a marriage that is your second marriage and you're living in a state of adultery, the only sermon you can receive is you need to divorce so you'll stop sinning. And that needs to be a separation. That's not what the Bible says. And I will say that nobody believes it. Nobody believes it. No scholars believe it. John Piper, who will stand on this side that says it is adultery if you sin, he says don't divorce and go back because the Bible does not say do that. So nobody believes that. But yet if we do believe adultery is sin perpetually, when you're remarried, um, then you're in a whole different, you're in a category of perpetual sins, and the only way you can do is, is break it off and leave. Um, Hebrews 10, 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the, of the truth, no sacrifice sin is left. To me, if you're in a perpetual state of adultery, no sacrifice for sin is left if you can stay in the marriage. That's exactly what the verse says, because you are perpetually sinning. I disagree with that. I completely disagree with it and entirely. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses did without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated 
um, as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. There is a bold statements in that verse. And those bold statements is get rid of perpetual sin. Get rid of a sin that you consistently go after, consistently do not want to let go, consistently justify, consistently say, this is okay. Well, if you're remarried and it's adultery, you have to say it is okay. And you have to be living in perpetual sin. And that's why I disagree with it. Number six, now you can agree with it. I don't care. I mean, you don't have to agree with me, but that's just why I disagree with it. Number six, the Bible nowhere commands a remarried couple to divorce to go back to the original mate. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible it commands that you should go back to um, your original mate. In fact, what it does, there is a statement in the Old Testament that says you had better not go back to your original mate. It's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, when Moses is allowing certificates of divorce. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds someone, uh, something indecent about her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from the house. And if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, she then leaves that one and goes to the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from the house, or if he dies... Then her first husband, him over here, that has divorced her, is not allowed to even go back to her again. So he's saying, you, you can't go back. You cannot turn around and, and go back according to that passage. I want to give you time to ask questions so we are kind of moving very rapidly. Number seven, in the Old Testament law, the punishment for adultery was death. The same time, Moses mentions remarriage after divorce, and it is not called adultery, and the death penalty is not demanded. Now, we are talking about the law, but as we're talking about the law, Jesus brings, uh, I'm going to give you the story, he will bring the law up in regards to talking about the law. Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. When they're trying to trick Jesus in Matthew 19, they walk up and say, well, what should we do here? Moses allowed people to have a certificate of divorce what do you say, Jesus? So they're trying to put Jesus on the spot. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to make a statement that is strong, that is rich, but what is the statement that he makes? He brings you clear back over Moses and goes clear to Genesis chapter 1. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not that way from the beginning. So in other words, he went all the way back from the very, very beginning and says, this is what marriage is and the richness of marriage. Now, if we're looking at the beginning and this is what marriage is, and Moses is permitting divorces to take place, he is working underneath the law and says, you can divorce, and then all of a sudden people are getting remarried, and if they are committing adultery, according to the law, they should be stoned. Every one of them should be stoned. Moses cannot even make a law you can divorce without keeping the law that they should be stoned if they commit adultery. So it, just, it, just, it just annihilates, it annihilates um, the whole thing. So in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. At the same time, Moses mentions remarriage after divorce and it is not called adultery and the death penalty is not demanded. Back then, what was taking place is that Moses couldn't have done that. He could not have done that if it was going to be 
a perpetual state of adultery that happens. Number eight, if your second divorce is adultery, every act of intercourse, every moment in emotional intimacy to your second wife would be unfaithful to your first spouse. Therefore, this passage right here is irrelevant for everybody who had, uh, is on their second marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Passage is, is irrelevant. Why? Because if you love her, lay down your life for her, if you sleep with her, if you think about her, if you have sex with her, you're committing adultery. You see the, the difficulty with this passage is if you make the blank statement that you are committing an adultery every time that you have sex with your second wife, sex with your second husband, it, it, it's not. It's not the case. I do not believe it is the case. Number nine, the focal point of every biblical passage is given to prevent a divorce, not punishing the remarried. That is consistently through every single passage, it is screaming out to the top of the lungs, do not divorce, do not divorce, do not divorce, do not divorce. So I want to put this uh, um, a little bit in context because I want to be very, very clear um, because I'm talking about, you know, remarriage is not adultery. And I mentioned this last week and probably way too much information. Well, what do I believe about um, divorce? Somebody walks in my office and says, you know, I am being emotionally abused um, and I want to leave my husband. Um, What would my answer be? Somebody walks in my office and say, you know, I don't feel like I'm in love with my husband or my wife anymore, and um, I feel like my secretary is somebody that I, I'm more in love with. I feel like we have things in common that I've never had in common before. I want a divorce. Is that okay? What do you think I would say? <laughs> say no. But what about I'm being abused physically by my husband. I'm being abused physically by my wife. I'm living in this bondage. I'm living in this oppression. And they come to my office and say, what should I do? Can I divorce? Um, you guys can give any answers you want, but I will give you the answer that I will give. That there is, there's, there's two realms of divorce. Abandonment, which is they just leave. <laughs> then you can remarry. I mean, that's what the Bible says. And then the other one is sexual immorality. So what I would say is I'd give you those two. That's what Scripture says. If Scripture says those two, then the other ones, you're going to have to work with. Well, what does that mean, work with? Whenever we hear work with, we think of in our mind, I've got to go back to the state that I'm in and survive. No. (laughs) This is what I would, if somebody came up to me and says, I want a divorce because I'm being physically abused, this is what I would say. You've got to get aggressively crazy. And what I mean by aggressively crazy, you've got to get people around you that will support you, and you've got to get out You've got to get your children out. You've got to make a move to say, I want this marriage to work, and it cannot work under side, inside of this violence. So I would never say, stay exactly where you are and take the abuse because that's what God wants you to do. Never say that. I would say, be everywhere aggressive to bring restoration to that marriage, and restoration often comes through confrontation. Restoration often comes through aggression that is... Um, aggressive. <laughs> In other words, very, very passionate. That's, that's strong. And then the church should walk, walk you through this um, as well. So I would say to somebody, you need to leave. You need to get out. We're not talking about divorce. 
you need to leave, you need to protect yourself, you need to get out, and we need to work with the situation to try to see if restoration, where there's not violence to take place, can happen. Um, so some people would disagree with me, and that's, that's okay. I'm not going to say, you know, this is just what I have interpretation of the Bible. God holds marriage in such a high regard that that's where we would push people or encourage people. But then I would say on the other side, what if you left? I'll be very clear. What if you left 20 years ago, and now you're married to somebody else? Where do you, where's your standing with God? Because oh, I, didn't, I did that. You're standing with God as you're born again. You're standing with God is the same statement that the prostitute had with Jesus when he looked at him and said, you were caught in adultery, and Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Get rid of the past. You're born again. You're brand new. You're saved by the blood. This is where you're at. My relationship with you is not stained. My relationship with you is not tartered. My relationship to you is not gone. It's not wiped away. No, there's a, a love relationship that if you're still with him or not with him, there's still that richness that is there because I'm a God of, of grace. We live in a world where the church has put guilt on people that if they live in a, a marriage, a remarriage, that you're in a spot that you should not be, that is not biblical from my perspective. Other people can believe that. From my perspective, that's not biblical. And the reason why is because you just completely took the gospel out of the picture. And why we can't preach the gospel. We can't preach freedom. We can't preach Christ and Christ crucified. We can't preach born again. We can't preach washed clean. This is the only topic, remarriage and adultery, the only topic where you can't fix it if it's happening. And if you can't fix it, then the gospel's got to be removed from it. The gospel will fix it. The gospel will clean it. The gospel will wash it away and let you start new in your past. Therefore, the answer slowly is if you're married to somebody, it's in a second marriage, you should feel loved by God, freedom by God. You should love your wife like Christ loved the church. You should submit like Christ submitted to the church. All those things should take place. The only difference I'm saying is if somebody walks in my office and says, I want a divorce, I will have this conversation. If somebody says, I have been divorced, I'll have this conversation. <laughs> There's freedom in the gospel. You're done. <laughs> you know, it's all right. Let's keep on moving through that situation, circumstance. Number 10, a divorced and remarried believer should not feel any less loved by God, even if the divorce and remarriage is not covered under the exception clause of adultery. They should feel not any less loved by God and you are working contrary to Scripture if you believe that they should. Scripture does not teach that. Scripture teaches a gospel that is powerful, a gospel where Jesus takes all the law and lifts it so high that every single Pharisee in the room is condemned. And every single sinner in the room is condemned, and then he puts the law on himself and says, I will pay, and I will not condemn you. You are washed clean. So, I would encourage all of us to look at this concept of adultery, remarriage. You know, are we committing adultery? You have to put the gospel inside of it, and you have to put it into perspective, and you have to see it in the light of Scripture, rather than by taking a verse and saying, this is exactly what the verse says, it is absolutely wrong. Well, the verse says, do not divorce, which I always preach, but it also says we have a God that has a gospel, a God of freedom.